The viewpoints expressed on Night Fright are not necessarily those of the host, the staff, the sponsors, or the affiliate stations. Tonight's program may contain graphic themes or images. Viewer discretion is advised. Gary, we're going to get going in a second. Folks, if you're just joining us, this is the way you hold drumsticks. <laughs> There's a reason for that. Showtime. Welcome to the show. I'm Brent Holland, and welcome one and all to Night Fright. When I was driving in right across Lake Ontario tonight, it was dark, it was gray, it was so just right across the board. You couldn't tell where the lake started and ended and where the sky started and ended. It is creepy. So it's a cold, stormy night out there. It's crisp. It's a typical October Eve. There's only one thing to do. Get the coffee going. Get the tea going. Get a beverage of your choice going. Kick your feet up. Get in your most comfy chair and settle in. Tonight we're going to rock you and literally. <laughs> okay, I have to tell this joke, okay, folks? It's a musician joke. <laughs> How do you get a guitarist to stop playing? Put sheet music in front of him. Oh! oh. What did the drummer get on his IQ test? Drool! How do you tell him the drum riser's level? You get drool out of both sides. Our Gary Patterson is here to discuss his book, Take a Walk on the Dark Side, Rock and Roll Myths, Legends, and Curses. Our Gary Patterson is being called the self-styled Fox Mulder of rock and roll. His book, Take a Walk on the Dark Side, Rock and Roll Myths, Legends, and Curses, begins with Robert Johnson waiting at the crossroads just outside Clarksdale, Mississippi to make his deal with Old Scratch. Other chapters focus on hidden messages in rock, Jimmy Page and the Led Zeppelin curse, strange fatal coincidences in the Alwyn Brothers and Leonard Skinner bands, and a discussion of an exclusive group of musicians who were members of, quote-unquote, the club. Now, the only membership requirement, folks, was the untimely death at the tender age of 27. Okay, Gary, let's jump in right away. I'm leaping off my double stack as we talk. My marshals, of course. Nothing else will do but marshals for rock and roll. When I was a kid, Gary, we were all told to play various Beatles songs backwards to hear the clues that were supposed to be imprinted to reveal that Paul McCartney had indeed expired. He had ceased to exist. The parrot was dead. That's a little Monty Python humor for us because we're going back to the 60s to start off. The records 
were on vinyl. So in those days, you could manipulate them mechanically, go back and forth. Um, you can go as fast as you want. The idea being that there was these messages imprinted on the records that said, Paul McCartney was dead. Can we talk about the Paul is dead craze that went on in the 60s and today? Well, I tell you, I was the perfect age for this because I'd just gotten out of high school and major Beatle fan grew up with them. And when the rumors started, it was spread by radio. This was before the internet. And when I decided to do the book, I decided that first of all, we had three sets of clues. The first would be totally ridiculous. Like you'd go back and you'd say, look at the Help album, Paul didn't have a hat. Well, you know, people were making it fit. It was like taking a sledgehammer and smashing a round peg into a square hole. And then the second group would be guided looking and guided listening. You may not see it, but once someone points it out, you're always gonna hear it. Was John Lennon saying, I buried Paul at the end of Strawberry Fields Forever? Or was it cranberry sauce? Or like Derek Taylor said, who claimed he was there, was it, I'm very bored? Well, if you play all of it, you can hear all three messages. So guided listening, guided looking, are the flowers, the hyacinth flowers on the Sergeant Pepper's cover, does it really spell Paul question mark above the grave? You may not see it, but once it's pointed out, you'll always see it. And then the third category had to be clues that were actually planted by the Beatles themselves. And for whatever reason, we may not find. But there are a couple that had to be planted, and they're chilling when you look at them. And you know the Beatles had to put it there, because when I call my book The Walrus Was Paul, it comes from Glass Onion, where John Lennon sings, here's another clue for you all, The Walrus Was Paul. Well, if there's another clue for you all, it means there were clues before, right? So you have to go and you have to find them. So if you want to, I'll tell you what I think is the greatest clue that the Beatles actually planted and they've never confessed it and we really don't know why they did it. But here's the story. When the Sgt. Pepper's album came out in 67, the rumors didn't hit till 69. So you went back to the Sgt. Pepper's cover and you see the Beatles standing in two locations, the wax figures and then the Beatles in their psychedelic finery, their, their marching band suits and satin and all that. And they're standing there and you got an open hand over Paul's head. Now Life Magazine came up with the idea that an open hand over your head was a Far Eastern symbol of death. And if you look at the Magical Mystery Tour album, there's two other pictures that Paul has an open hand over his head. Well, at least he's picked out of the four. Now, the rumor was that the freshly dug grave that said Beatles was the grave of Paul McCartney with the Beatles looking down at it. And a lot of people noticed it doesn't say the Beatles, it says Beatles, like there's some Beatles there. The open hand over Paul's head, the graveyard scene. Now, to me, if you look at the history of the cover, Peter Blake did the artwork, but he didn't design the drum skin. There were two drum skins designed. Oh, I didn't know this. Yes, two different drum skins. But the only thing similar 
was the phrase lonely hearts. And it was rather reflective. So if you look in the crowd, you've got Aleister Crowley, of course, on the upper left-hand side, which really created a little favor when you talk about the occult in rock and roll. But if you look on the right behind John Lennon, you'll see Lewis Carroll. And Lewis Carroll was one of John Lennon's major influences as a writer. And of course, you'll remember Alice's adventures through the looking glass. So the clue was you had to have a mirror to find the clue. So the drum skin was designed by a painter whose name was Joe Epgrave, E-P-T-H-G-R-A-V-E, which is epitaph, grave, a tombstone. So if the bass drum was a tombstone, then you would expect to find the name of the person who died and the date of his death. And it's on the drum skin. Huh. So what you do, you take a straight edge mirror, you put it in the center of lonely hearts, and it spells out a hidden message. Now, I know you're going to go home and do this. So going from the left, you have Roman numeral 1, capital I, and then it goes O-N-E, 1 again, and then you have I-X, which is numeral 9. So you have 1, 1, 9, and then it says he die. And between he and die is a diamond-shaped arrow that points straight up to Paul McCartney and down to the grave. Huh. So, so when I first saw this, I was trying to say, well, what does all this mean? And it came to me that one of the Beatles, the one with nine letters, McCartney's the only one with nine letters, and he died. But see, even though that was simple, it doesn't follow the rule of an epitaph. Because the arrow points up to McCartney, we know it was him. So now we have the date of death. The 119 becomes 11-9, November the 9th. Now, in at least three Beatle references, they mention a car accident Paul McCartney had on November 9th, 1966, at 5 o'clock in the morning. Was that an actual car accident that they were yes, referencing? referenced in three oh, books yeah. after he left Abbey Road Studios. So I had that date. Because the first thing that came to my mind, of course, in England, you would not have 11-9, you would have September 11th, wouldn't you? Because the 11th day, 9th month. Yeah. But I couldn't find anything and any reference mentioning anything that happened in a car accident or anything with McCartney, except for November 9th. Which probably means American audiences really picked up on it with the date. So... It was the first album that lyrics were ever printed on, ever. You turn it over on the back. McCartney has his back to the camera. In Life magazine, it was because plastic surgery scars had to heal. I thought that was cool. But if you look at George Harrison, their picture was made first, and George is pointing with his thumb, with a very solemn look on his face. He's pointing to the first line of the song, She's Leaving Home, which says, Wednesday morning at five o'clock as the day begins. Well, remember, the accident occurred on November 9th at five o'clock. If you go back to 1966, check on the date November 9th, it's a Wednesday. 
So the Beatles actually planted that. There was no way that that bass drum, the whole history of Sgt. Pepper's, it was called Lonely Hearts to give the clue. Now, why did they do it? Why have they never said, you know, we put one of the greatest clues in the history of rock and roll right under your noses, and you never really found it, and we're not going to explain it. I have a theory. You want to hear the theory? Absolutely, 110%. Because <laughs> I have one, too, but go ahead. All right, well, let me hear yours first, and then well, I'll take I, I was going to say it was right around the era when the Bible Belt got a hold of all the Beatles albums. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. John had come out and said something to the effect that more people in the world had heard of the Beatles than they had of Jesus Christ. Well, this didn't fly well with the Bible Belt in that era. You know, we're looking at the 60s here, folks. We always got to be cognizant of the era we're talking about. And uh, they were, people were on the radio, DJs and everybody else were saying, burn your Beatles records. It was very popular. And to combat that, I think that they came up with this marketing campaign in order to take people's minds off that and uh, sell records. Bottom line, sell records. I don't know. What do you think? I think you're very close, in my opinion. Because once John Lennon said the Beatles were more popular than Jesus Christ, they were doing their second tour. And when they went to Memphis... John Lennon received a note saying he was going to be shot on stage at oh, 9 o'clock. I didn't know that. Yes, and when they were performing in Memphis, you had the Ku Klux Klan, you had all these people who were against the Beatles. Right. Someone threw a string of firecrackers, and they started going off, and the Beatles stopped, and they looked at each other to see who had been shot. And then after they left Memphis and they flew to the Philippines... And they were beaten because they didn't go to the, uh, the party of the president. They were on a plane, and George Harrison said, you know, it's not fun being a Beatle anymore. And that's when they stopped their live performances. Yeah. I like the marketing idea, and it goes into my theory. Sgt. Pepper was completely different from any album the Beatles had ever recorded. That's true. They were revolutionary. Yeah. Revolver came first, and Revolver was a complete change. One of my, well, probably my favorite Beatle album of the period, Psychedelic. And then they go into the, the instrumentation, Thanks to Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys, you know, a competition. Mm -hmm. And they went into it, and maybe the thought came, what if we can't sell this album? What if we have... Gary, can I just get you to back off your camera, maybe six inches, just so we can see your face? Oh, well, oh, that's, that's, oh that's, yeah, look at better. that. All right, now, that's I'm in the much right better. position. Now, wait a second. You do look kind of like Paul. Do you play bass? Uh, I got a scar. Uh, actually, I can play bass. Both? Though I have two stacks of Marshalls are downstairs. You, are you a lefty? No, but I can, I can fake it. You can fake All right, it. I can fake it like his imposter. But anyway, think of it this way. What if the album didn't sell? Mm-hmm. So what if they came up and they said, hey, let's put some clues in here. So if nobody buys the albums, they'll buy it to find all the references to Paul is dead. And when they received a phone call, it was, uh, it was in January of 66. There was a rumor that went around England that McCartney was killed on uh, one of the ice-capped highways. And they actually called him at his St. John's Wood home. And he said, no, I'm fine. So if there was that kind of fervor in England, 
about McCartney being dead, hmm, maybe they could put some clues on an album and have people buy the album to find the clues. But what happened? Obviously, no one picked up on the clues till 69, and then they went back, and all the Beatle albums jumped up on the charts, and they were selling like mad, so they made a ton of money. And Russ Gibb, the DJ who started the whole thing, told me personally that at first the Beatle offices called him and they were furious with him. But then when they started selling albums, that McCartney came through Michigan and he asked him if he'd like to come to the show. And what he got out of it, they gave him a whole catalog of Beatle albums. So huh. that's kind of cheap. But anyway, Russ Gibb received the album. So my theory is that Sgt. Pepper was so revolutionary it had an insurance policy to make sure it would sell. Mm. And it did do well. So the Beatles kept their mouth shut over that. But the most fascinating thing to me is there are people who really believe Paul is dead. Now, if I knew this back in 1969, I would be convinced he was dead too. But people will come up to me and they say, you know, Paul is dead because there's just something about his eyes. You know, and I'm sitting here going, wow, it sounds like the invaders that you know the mystery show in the United States, but you know, they're really big pinkies or something. Yeah, right? their the pinkies are deformed. In his case, it's his eyes. And one of the funniest things going through all this is that people have measured his height, and they said his height is different from 1967 on. That uh, his face is different, and so actually, what I had to do doing this on coast to coast is I went to a graduate in forensic studies from the body farm in Knoxville, Tennessee with Dr. Bass, and I said, look at these pictures, look at his face, and tell me, is this an imposter? And they said that when you do a photograph to make it fit, you have to stretch it. So all of this incredible time spent to do his hot and to call him fall, false Paul and all of this, it was, it's really not it. Plus I saw him last November and he sounded great for three hours, even to get a drink of water. I mean, he was on stage performing. So how lucky would the Beatles be that they found a guy who looked just like Paul McCartney, that he played bass left-handed and he wrote much better songs than Paul McCartney. And I mean, think of live and let die. Think of the second side of Abbey road. Maybe I'm amazed. Yeah, My maybe. Some, yeah. yeah, great one. Yeah, I love it. No, no, no. Yeah. And you listen to it and you sit there and you think, well, Paul McCartney before 66, he did write Yesterday. I've just seen a face. And those are great songs. But if you just sit there and think about it, the greatest stuff happened from 67 on. Did they so, carry that through? Did they take that marketing aspect consciously? I'm thinking of Abbey Road, of course. You know, everybody says that. Uh, George is the undertaker because he's, you know, you tell the story. You probably know it much better than I do. Well, when the rumors came out, Fred Labore was a journalist, and he wrote this incredible article that the walk across Abbey Road was a funeral procession. Exactly right. Starts with John Lennon dressed all in white. He's the divinity. Then you had Ringo in a three-piece black suit, either the undertaker or the minister. Then you had Paul. He had his eyes closed. He had a cigarette in his right hand. Everybody knows Paul's left-handed. He was barefoot. But the funny thing about McCartney is he was wearing a suit that was designed for the Beatles 
1966. So he had an outdated suit, barefoot, and he was out of step with the other three Beatles. He started with his right foot, the other Beatles started with their left, so he was different. And then you had you had George, and George was the grave digger. Right. He had his blue jeans and his work Jean shirt. shirt. Yeah. And then you had the fifth Beetle, the Volkswagen Beetle. The Volkswagen. 28 if? I think 28 if. Yeah. McCartney would have been 28 if he lived when Abbey Road came out. Well, actually, McCartney was 27, which is even scarier compared to the other. But 28 if, and then you had the letters LMW, which fans interpreted as Linda McCartney weeps, 28 oh if. Oh, my. So everybody made it fit. And then, of course, when you turn the album over, you have a series of dots on the wall. If you connect the dots, it makes the number three, and then you see the word Beatles, but there's four, right? Right. Three Beatles, and then there's a crack through the S, which shows that there's a flaw within the band, and right after Beatles, there is a skull made out of light and shadow following it. And they even have an interpretation of the girl walking in front of the sign in the blue mini dress. They said that was Jane Asher walking from the scene. So... It was huge. It was probably, well, it was the greatest hoax in rock and roll history, probably second only to uh, Orson Welles' War of the Worlds. War of the Worlds, yeah. That was probably the, the greatest one in media, and probably the second great urban legend next to Robert Johnson. So we have a look at that. Let's go to Robert Johnson in a second. Folks, we're having some fun tonight. Yeah, with a serious side as well. Our Gary Patterson is our guest tonight. We're discussing his new book, Take a Walk on the Dark Side, Rock and Roll Miss, folks, Legends and Curses. www.nightfrightshow.com. Click on tonight's guest book cover. That'll take you right to a spot where you can order the book from the comfort of your own home. Okay, let's go to Robert Johnson. Now, there was a movie that came out, I think it was 1988, if I'm not mistaken, let me just scroll down. Um, yeah, it was 1986, actually. It was called Crossroads, and it was made precisely from this next lore that we're going to be discussing. It starred Ralph Machaccio and Joe Seneca and Jamie Gertz. Uh, Robert Leroy Johnson, he was born on May 8, 1911. He died August 16, 1938, at the age of of 27, Faustian myth that he sold his soul to the devil at a crossroads to achieve success. Controversy around his death, like Mozart, he may have been poisoned by a jealous husband. So we're going to talk about that. Now, Robert Johnson, folks, was a black blues player deep in Mississippi, 1911. Yeah, so we got to put context, right? We have to put him in the era, in the geographical location as well. There was no thought for the younger group of the possibilities ever of having a black man in the White House in those days. So let's take a look at it through that lens with Gary. Gary, can you tell us that story? Robert Johnson wanted to be a great blues man, but he was a terrible guitar player. <laughs> and he was awful. And the old lightning bolt I see behind you. No, I'm kidding. Oh, yeah, well, I should bring my dirt up. I forgot about it. But what happened 
was that he would follow all the great old blues men around like Sunhouse and Charlie Patton, mm. and they would avoid him. And Robert Johnson used to play harmonica, and he, he was probably worse on guitar than he was harmonica. But he disappeared for up to six weeks, and no one knows where he went. He actually went looking for his father in Memphis. Oh. But when he came back in those six weeks, he was the most incredible guitarist on the Mississippi Delta. And when those old blues guys heard him play, Sunhouse turned to the others and he said, you know, he sold his soul to play like that. And that started the legend. And that was it. And when he went to the juke joints to play, he would bend his head over sort of like this. And he had a cataract in one of his eyes. And when the light hit the cataract, his eye would glow. And people were convinced it was the evil eye. And when he would play certain passages, he would turn his back so no one could steal his licks. And here's what it all means. The legend was that if you wanted to be a great guitarist, a great bluesman, you would go to a deserted crossroads sometime after midnight, bring your guitar, and sit there and play a few licks, and then you would feel a presence walk up behind you. Now, you dare not turn and look, because you knew who that presence was. Old Scratch himself. But you would take your guitar, you would pass it over your shoulder, the devil would take your guitar, and you would hear him tune it to a very special tuning. And then when he handed it back over your shoulder and you accepted it, you made your pact. And the pact was you would be given fame, you would be given adoring women fans, and, uh, and a little bit of money. But you would die a young death. I mean, you're not going to be old. So Johnson, according to his contemporaries, made that deal, and he would play the juke joints, and he'd pick out a certain woman to be his companion. And the bad luck for him was he picked the wife of the juke joint owner, and all at once he was given a bottle of whiskey. Now, Sonny Boy Williamson told him, never drink from an open whiskey bottle. But Robert Johnson did. It had been laced with strychnine. They took him to a house nearby, and it took him three days to die. Oh. And according to the legend, he was on his hands and knees, barking like a dog and howling the moment he died at the age of 27. So the Robert Johnson myth, I think it was the myth that got Eric Clapton, Jimmy Page, and uh, Keith Richards really involved in Robert Johnson's music. Because let's face it, this guy sold his soul to the devil. What can he play? And that's why Eric Clapton is so obsessed with Johnson. I mean, he loves Robert Johnson. He loves the myth. So when I was doing my second book, Hellhounds on Their Trail, mm. opened up with Robert Johnson. And then I started doing these other great rock legends like Brian Jones, Jimi Hendrix, uh, Janis Joplin. Uh, you know, the list goes on, and I noticed that they all died at the age of 27. Yeah, what's that about? Well, it's probably the unluckiest number in rock and roll history. Mm. I was reading in a BMI journal an article by John Mayer, and they asked him, they said, what do you think was your greatest contribution so far in music? And he said, well, I made it past 27. Mm. So a lot of rock stars have this in their mind now, and I guess 
I created the Curse of 27 in 1998, and I did a thing on VH1 with it. So I was given an article by a professor who said that he had calculated the death of rock stars and that over 43 rock stars died at the age of 27. And it was the number one age that rock stars died. And I was on my way to Florida a few years ago, and my phone started blowing up with radio interviews when Amy Winehouse died because she was 27. So today, when a rock star dies, I think, oh, my gosh, don't let him be 27. And uh, I look at it. But, you know, you have so many who passed away. I remember when Jimi Hendrix died, he was 27. And then Janis Joplin said, when she'd heard that Hendrix had died a few weeks before she did, she said, well, I'm sure glad I didn't die today. He would have got all the press. Well, she died two weeks later. Yeah. And then Jim Morrison had just gotten through his obscenity trial in Memphis and had gone out to drink with some friends. And when he was told that Hendrix and Joplin died, he turned to his friends and said, well, you know, you're drinking with number three. Mm. And he died next at 27. So... Is it numerological that two plus seven makes nine? And numerologists will tell you that nine is your highest spiritual number, that you can't get any higher, that they're, they had achieved so much there was no more to give. I've heard that. Of course, you're in your mother's womb for nine months. Mm -hmm. So the number nine plays an important role. John Lennon was obsessed with the number nine. And, I mean, my gosh, if you take a look at John... He was born on October 9th in a city called Liverpool with nine letters. His address on Menlove Street made a nine. Uh, he met Paul McCartney, uh, who had nine letters in his name, which made the Beatles only after McCartney joined. The Beatles were discovered on November 9th, 1963. Uh, you have Paul is dead on November 9th, 1966. Mm -hmm. Beatles appeared on the Ed Sullivan show on February 9th. The Beatles were discovered in 61, I should have said by Brian Epstein. You had nine years to 61, that's 1970, the year of the last Beatle album. 71, John and Yoko moved to the United States. You had nine years to 71, that's 1980, the year that John Lennon was assassinated. He lived on uh, at the Dakota on 72nd Street, which makes nine. He was shot in Russia Roosevelt Hospital, nine letters. The address of Roosevelt Hospital was 9th Avenue, and he was pronounced officially dead at 1107. Seven plus one plus one is nine. He was born at 630 in the morning, six plus three is nine. And when he died at 1107, it was on December 8th. But being an English citizen from Liverpool, it's five hours earlier. So in England, he died on December 9th. And he was always conscious of how the number nine related to his life. You can go back, you can look at uh, the contracts the Beatles had that had a number of nines. His mother was killed in a hit and run accident with a constable. The license tag added up to a nine. And you look at this and you think, well, that's just a great coincidence. But you know, the best example of a coincidence is an explanation waiting to happen. So who knows? Who knows? You had the number nine there. And then let's take a look at 2016. Look how many artists, not only rock artists like no, Prince, Len Fry, but we were just talking about this the other night. Yeah. yeah. And you take a look at all those numbers, but you had 
2016, you get a nine. So this is a nine year. So whatever's happening, if there is something numerology, there's been a number of great artists taken from us. The most that I can ever remember all at once, though one year you had a number of artists who died in alphabetical order, which was real freaky, you know, and I know Gene Pitney, and then the point, one of the Pointer sisters, Billy Preston, and Womp, Womp, Blump, and I thought, oh my gosh, not only are they dying, they're dying in alphabetical order. So I'm glad it started before Patterson, PA, and it went a little earlier on. I mean, I'm a rock historian, but, you know, when you take a look at that, you're saying, you know, what a coincidence that is. Can we talk a little bit about Keith Moon, Mama sure. Cass, Buddy Holly? that whole story surrounding that. I was a big Keith Moon fan. He was born the same day I was, but 10 years earlier. And um, he was instrumental for me getting into music. Now I compose music for television and film, NASA, ABC, and all those guys. So I blame him. <laughs> and I play drums like him too. Much to the chagrin of the lead singers that I've been in bands with. Who's in the loon? Well, they say, you know, oh no, here comes Holland, the lead drummer. <laughs> well, you know, I have a friend, Jamie Oldacre, who was Eric Clapton's drummer from 1994 mm. to 1990, and he knew Keith Moon. And one funny story before we start on the story you want to hear is they were at one of the, ho the Omni Hotel in Atlanta. And Pete Townsend was at the desk trying to get a room for he and uh, Keith Moon. And while they were talking, Keith Moon was crawling on his stomach, trying to get through the lobby so they wouldn't see him. And the manager of the hotel said, no, not him, not him. And they had to pay like $100,000 down for any damage that'd be done to the room. And they said, as soon as Moon got up to his room, he runs into the room, he takes the television set, runs it out, and throws it into a glass atrium. So a lot of hotels wouldn't let Moon stay. But one of the strangest stories with Keith Moon was that he was staying in a flat that was owned by Harry Nilsson, and it was in Mayfair. And what happened four years before, Mama Cass had died in the same place. And she died of a heart attack, not a ham sandwich as the legend says. So it was a heart attack, so that part of an urban legend is not true. Well, it was the night of September 7th, and Paul McCartney asked Keith Moon and his date to attend a performance of the Buddy Holly story on the West End in London. So they went. This was actually the sixth. Yeah, the new movie starring Gary Busey. Oh, no, it's not the movie. It was the play. Oh, it was the play. My mistake. You see how I get it all wrong. Mm-hmm. Thank God. He's a, the movie was bad enough. I mean, the screenplay writer of the movie, The Buddy Holly Story, committed suicide the day the movie came out. Is that right? Well, I mean, if you can't even get the names of the crickets right in a movie, it's, you know, it's probably not the greatest accurate rock historian movie that you would see, but it did introduce the music. But this was the play on the West End. Okay. When they got back, Moon went out and he took some medication to help with his drinking problem, and he overdosed on it. Now, he was pronounced dead on September 7th, which is Buddy Holly's birthday, after going to see the Buddy Holly uh, play in the West End. And it was odd, plus in a room four years earlier that Mama Cass had died in. So 
a lot of times we take a look at the Buddy Holly curse because when Buddy Holly died in the plane crash, strange things happened. You had the winter dance party tour going on and you had to have a replacement. So Ronnie Smith was brought in to duplicate Ronnie or Buddy's voice. Yeah. Yeah. And when the tour is over, he goes back, checks himself in a sanatorium and hangs himself, commits suicide. Buddy had written a number of songs called The Apartment Tapes. So the crickets were still looking for a singer. So they took the 17 year old kid out of Lubbock, whose name was David Box, and he moved to California. His mother and father went with him, and he stayed in the home with Peggy Sue Guerin and Mary Allison. And he recorded a song called Peggy Sue Got Married, which was the second song that Buddy had written for her. Well, he leaves the cricket, starts his own band, had a hit song, regional hit song, called Summer Girl, and he chartered a small plane with members of his band the plane crashed, and he was killed at the same age as Buddy Holly. Oh. Now, Buddy Holly's best friend was Eddie Cochran. And Eddie Cochran was Summertime supposed blues. To, yes. And he was supposed to be on the winter dance party. But he canceled because he did a television show. Well, it was like Final Destination. Eddie Cochran was convinced that death was after him because he would have been on that plane. So he becomes just really obsessed with it. He does a song called Three Stars right after the plane crash. And when he does the, the song, his voice breaks up so badly that he tells his manager, he says, if you release this song, I'll never do another one. But the last song he recorded was called Three Steps to Heaven. He goes to England where Buddy Holly and Eddie Cochran were so much larger than they were in the United States. And he brought his girlfriend, Sharon Sheely, over, a songwriter, and he had her go out and buy all the Buddy Holly singles she could find. And she would come home, and he would be in his hotel room with the lights out, listening to Buddy Holly over and over and over again. And Sharon tells him, she says, Eddie, you've got to get over this. She said, you know, you've got to get over this thing with Buddy. And he says, no. He says, because I think I'll be sinning very soon. So he actually went to a fortune teller in England and she read his fortune and he went up to his room. He woke up in the middle of the night and he was screaming, I'm going to die. And there's not anything anyone can do about it. Well, in April of 1960, he was killed in a car accident. His body was thrown out of the car. He landed somewhere near his guitar. Sharon Sheely's back was broken. Gene Vincent was with him, just really messed up Gene's leg for the second time. They rushed him to the hospital. He was in a coma. And it turns out the Crickets were in England backing uh, the Everly Brothers. So when the Crickets heard about Eddie's accident, they came to see him in Bath. And when they left, he died. So here's someone else very close to Buddy Holly who has probably one of the most supernatural stories mm. about knowing that death was chastening. Another interesting one was Bobby Fuller, who did I Fought the Law and the Law One. Sure. Yeah. He was from El Paso, and he sounded very much like Buddy Holly. And he sent a demo tape to Buddy Holly's parents right after Buddy died. Well, Buddy's father sent the tape along to Clovis, New Mexico, to Norman Petty, who was Buddy's co-songwriter, producer, engineer,
and he signed Bobby Fuller. He had a few regional hits, but Bobby moves to Hollywood, and he brings the Bobby Fuller Four with him, and when the Beatles came over, they thought that he was probably the best artist that they had heard, American artist, so they were fans. Well, he cut I Fought the Law and the Law One, which was written by Sonny Curtis of the Crickets, mm -hmm. and one night as he brought his mother over from Texas, he gets a phone call about one o'clock in the morning. He answers the phone, very guardingly tells his mother, he says, I have to go out. I'll be back in a little while. Can I borrow your car? Because Bobby had just bought a brand new Corvette. He borrows his mother's car and off he goes. Well, he doesn't come back the rest of the night. So now his mother is really terrified, calls his manager. They start looking for him. But around five, six o'clock, she hears the car pull in the garage. So now she's at ease, but she doesn't see Bobby. She goes out to the car, and Bobby Fuller was found stretched across the front seat, badly beaten, bruised face, bruised chest. His left index finger was broken. He's a guitar player. You don't break your left index finger. He had been doused in gasoline, and there was gasoline down his throat, a gas can in the back seat. Well, his manager and owner of the label, Adelphi Records, was Bob Keane. He comes to the scene, he sees the police take the gasoline can and throw it in a dumpster. They don't even check for fingerprints. When he asked what happened, he said, oh, just some rock and roller who's committed suicide. Well, here's the problem. You can't drink gasoline. When you swallow gasoline, you immediately regurgitate it. So this gasoline had been forced down his throat. It was not suicide. You don't beat yourself bruised and, and black and blue and break your index finger and let your mother find your body laying over the front seat of her car. But today, no one knows what happened to Bobby Fuller. There is a theory that he was dating this girl who was a mobster's girlfriend, and there was a hit put on him. And that's what happened to Bobby Fuller. And I know that his brother Randy and the family had hired a private detective to find out what happened. The detective goes to his office a week later. Two men are in his office at night. They shoot at him, and the private detective drops the case. Randy uh, Fuller was ran off the road, so he and his family moved back to Texas, and they're still trying to find out what happened to Bobby Fuller. So he died at the same age of Buddy Holly. The first song he had that was a hit was uh, I Fought the Law, which was crickets, oh, yeah. and the very last song he recorded was Love's Made a Fool of You, which was written by uh, Buddy Holly. And if you take a look at the gangland murder with yeah. the girl, then I guess you might say it was rather ironic that Love Made a Fool of Him. Can we take a look at some of the darker aspects of when musicians get involved with the paranormal and the occult? Thinking of Jimmy Page, Richie Blackmore. Can we talk about the Zeppelin curse? I'd love to. Thank you, sir. <laughs> well, first of all, all this started with Kenneth Anger. And Kenneth Anger was a filmmaker, still is, and uh, he was a member of the Church of Satan, mm. and he was a big fan of Alistair Crowley. So when he comes to England, he decides that he'd like to do a couple of films. The first one was An Invocation of My Demon Brother, which was about Alistair Crowley, and he hires Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones to write the music on a synthesizer. And Mick's brother actually plays in the film, along with Mary Ann Faithful. Hmm. So 
a lot of strange things happened with the Stones, you know, and with Kenneth Anger. But the big one was Jimmy Page, because Page was a collector of Aleister Crowley memorabilia. He had a he had an occult bookstore in London called the Equinox, and you could find annotated Crowley books and manuscripts. He had the robes, he had the daggers, and then one day, the ultimate collectible, the Leskin House. So there was a number of bids. Now, Bleskin House was Crowley's home. And the history of the house, oh my gosh, you talk about a horror movie. When the house was built, it was built in the medieval period on a spot where a church had been burned to the ground with the entire congregation trapped inside. One of the owners of the house was Lord Lavat, who you may not remember, but he was the last person in England to be beheaded. He was rather short, heavy, didn't have much of a neck, and he asked the king if he'd be all right just to hang him because he knows how bad it would be if the executioner missed several times with an axe. But it only took one stroke, and if you go to London and you go to the uh, Tower of London, the White Tower, you can see the actual block and the axe that was used in his beheading. Wow. Well, now in Beleskin House, they claim that you can hear a head roll down the stairs at night. Oh. Now, when Page outbid Kenneth Anger for the house, he had it decorated. But here's a story. Jimmy Page never spent the night in the house. Oh, he didn't? No. You can see the house when you see their movie, The Song Remains the Same. It's the scene where Page is climbing up the mountain to see the, the hermit of the tarot cards. You can see the house below him. Now they would stay, but they wouldn't stay the night. Now Mountain Dent, who was the groundskeeper, told me that he had spent the night in the house and that he heard the sound of something scratching trying to get into his, to his room. And he turned on the lights and he said it started pounding on the door. And he said it was quite, it was very quite fearful for him. So you get the idea that there was something there. What was it? Kenneth Anger says that when uh, Aleister Crowley had summoned spirits, elemental spirits, that he forgot to bind them and they roamed the house. So that was what Anger said. Anger actually lived in the house and produced a film called Lucifer Rising in which Jimmy Page was to compose the music. Huh. And Kenneth Anger said that there was a 300-pound painting on the wall that he and some people were sitting around, and he noticed that this painting lifted itself off the wall and sat on the floor silently. And he was explaining that all these spirits were there. Well, what happens next is that Jimmy Page didn't compose enough of the music, and Kenneth Anger put a curse on Jimmy Page that became the Zeppelin curse. And what happened, John Bonham had a number of car accidents, which they had to cancel the tour. John Paul Jones had broken his left hand. They canceled again. Robert Plant and his wife were injured in a car accident that was very severe, and that Plant was in a wheelchair when he did the album Presence. Huh. Finally, in 1977, they went on tour. And when they got to New Orleans, there was a call for Robert Plant announcing 
that his young son, Carrick, had died from a stomach virus. You don't die from stomach viruses. So Plant was pretty well convinced it was his involvement in the occult with Jimmy Page because Jimmy Page was not touched by the curse and everyone else was. And what bothered Plant was that Jimmy Page didn't show up to his son's funeral. So you had the split in the band. Now, when they got together again and they did Unleaded, John Bonham had died. And then they didn't ask John Paul Jones to join the band. That's right. Now, one of the things that's interesting is that there were people involved in Led Zeppelin, like Richard Cole, one of their managers, who had claimed that there was an urban legend that before they took off, they had made their own pact with the devil, just like Robert Johnson, and they'd signed the contract. Three of them signed, one didn't. The one who did not sign was John Paul Jones. The other three did. Now, this makes it, makes it spooky because the road crew members, they would ask about it, and uh, Cole said, well, don't go shopping with Jimmy Page. He may sacrifice you. And they were just like jokes. But you know it sort of hit him. When Plant and Page got back together again, they did an album called Walking Into Clarksdale. Now, what do you think was in Clarksdale? Oh, the crossroads. Exactly. So you have that. And so you have a number of this. I mean, first of all, when I listen to Led Zeppelin IV, mm-hmm. when I turn it on and I hear the Battle of Evermore, right. that is one of the most, it's almost a scary song when you hear it, if you turn the lights out. There's just something unworldly about it. Same thing with Four Sticks. So, you know, S- Sandy Denny had recorded the female vocals on it, and she had told people that when she recorded it, she was in Stone and Crows, that when she recorded it, it sounded like something unnatural mm. in the studio. Well, after the recording, several months later, she fell down a flight of stairs and died of a brain aneurysm. So you had people who were sort of touched by it as they went with it. And a lot of people look at the four symbols on the Led Zeppelin four album. Yes. The interesting thing is, if you'll take a look at Zoso, which was Jimmy Page's symbol, which some people said was the guardian of the gates of hell, the dog. Uh, Also that it could be the alchemical symbol of Mercury. He's on one side and the feather is on the right side. And that was uh, Robert Plant's symbol. And the other two symbols of, uh, let's see, Jimmy, well, the symbol with John Paul Jones and Bonham were inside, which means the two strongest members with the occult were on the outside protecting the two inner. Hmm. When you did Stairway to Heaven, well, first of all, that the Zeppelin Four album was recorded at Headley Grange. It used to be an old Victorian workhouse where a number of people having to work for their sustenance died there, terrible conditions. When Page walked in, he claimed to have seen a spirit standing at the top of the stairs. This is where the old album was recorded. And, of course, it was where Stairway to Heaven was recorded. And Page had composed the music, and when Robert Plant heard it, he composed all the lyrics very quickly. And he said, well, they just came out at me. And, of course, you've heard the story about what happens when you play it backwards. 
No, what's that? I haven't heard this one. Oh my gosh. This is this is what you do on Halloween. Okay, this is giving me goosebumps now. Go ahead. All right. Well, first of all, I got to tell you. There was a time period in the 80s. We only have 2 minutes left. All right, so I'm going to do this in 10 seconds. All right. There was a time period that that Dan Rather came on the nightly news and said that a number of rock and roll songs had hidden satanic messages. And I remember that. he warned everyone about it. Yeah. All right, if you take the third verse, if there's a bustle in your hedgerow, don't be alarmed now. It's just a sprinkling for the May Queen. Yes, there are two paths you can go by, but in the long run, there's still time to change the road you're on. If you reverse it, and I don't, I don't buy into this, but I swear I hear it. You do it too. Reverse it, and you'll hear a voice say, uh, The Lord is my sweet Satan. The next line is, The one will be the sad one who makes me sad, whose power is in Satan. Then the next line says, He will give you 666. Oh. So follow him with worship. Bring me yourself, my sad Satan. And every time it says, and it makes me wonder, you play it backwards and you hear a voice that says, I will sing because I live with Satan. And when you hear the last line, and she's buying a stairway to heaven, play it backwards and you'll hear a voice say, play song backwards, hear words sung. Oh. Now, Robert Plant said there was no way they put it in there because it had to be not a backward mask where you would say, when the rain comes, they run and hide their heads backwards. This has to be one with phonetics where you have to have the message and then you complete nonsensical phrases that will give you the right message when you play it backwards. Absolutely. So like if there's a bustle in your hedgerow. Oh, man. Folks. So you're going to have fun. Gary Patterson uh, on Toronto in Toronto. If you're around Toronto on Saturday, October fifteenth, he will be doing uh, 2016. By the way, in case you're listening to this in 2017, <laughs> he will have a live show there, put on by Richard Surrett, and all the information for that show will be on the www.nightfrightshow.com website. Also, his book is called. Take a walk on the dark side, rock and roll myths, legends, and curses. What was your experience at the crossroads? Oh, my goodness. 30 seconds. To, 30 seconds. Got to hurry. I went with a group of friends. We went to the crossroads right outside Clarksdale. We had a number of pictures taken. None of the pictures came out. We went into the cemetery where Robert Johnson said the devil taught him to play guitar at night. One of the girls had a stick as she was beating this huge black snake. Oh. So we left, we dug up some dirt from the center of the crossroad. I found that the girl who was hitting the snake had a brain angle and rushed to the hospital. Uh, we'll have to leave it there. I'm sorry the music's taken over. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Brent Holland from Night Fright. See you all next time. Thank you, Gary. Thank you, Richard. You're listening to Night
JFK Assassination, the definitive book by Brendan Holland. From inside the Oval Office to Davy Plaza, first-person witness accounts. Order yours right now. Nightfrightshow.com.